Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about getting pregnant. Although today, not pregnant, maybe something that's stopping us from getting pregnant. Endometriosis. Welcome, Dr. Rayleigh Lou from Women's Health Melbourne. Hi. So, first question, and I have to say this is a topic that's been requested by our audience, is endometriosis. So, it's something people have definitely heard of, and some people have, but no one really knows what it is. So, first question, what is endometriosis? Endometriosis um, is a condition that stumped doctors for a long time. It's a condition within the female pelvis where there are areas that develop into scar tissue or inflammatory kind of nodules or, or ulcers and the tissue is responsive to hormones of the menstrual cycle. So these are areas and that look like endometrium, which is why it's called endometriosis. What's endometrium? Endometrium is the name of the tissue that lines the uterus and it's a really important tissue for fertility because when we get pregnant, an embryo implants into the endometrium. It's like the kind of lush carpet-like lining of the inner uterus where the embryo first sticks. So this is like the cushiony jam area. Okay, that's endometrium? That's the endometrium. So, yeah, it's like a cushion and, and it's basically uh, the tissue between, it forms the interface between the embryo and the mother. And the embryo has to first adhere, so stick, to the endometrium and then it has to invade the endometrium and form its placenta um, or cells that are destined to be a placenta. So it's kind of forming that barrier um, that's a kind of two-way communication barrier between the mother and the baby. But in endometriosis, there are tissues that are like the endometrium. The endometrium is made of different tissues. The cells have glands within them and, and, and blood vessels within them and stromal tissue, which is like connective tissue within the endometrium. And, but in endometriosis, there's tissue that's outside of the uterus where we're not meant to have this kind of tissue mm-hmm. and there's areas around the pelvis that act like the endometrium. And we all know that when women have periods every month, the endometrium, when it reaches the end of its monthly cycle, sheds and bleeds. Oh. So is that a period? A period is is shedding endometrium? Yeah, so the endometrium has layers and there's the basal layer which we never shed and that's where the stem cells come that regenerate the endometrium every month. But the top layers, they shed. So either you get pregnant and this fresh, luscious endometrium accepts an invading embryo and um, invading for... Well, that's a medical (laughs) term, but an implanting embryo. Or the endometrium doesn't receive an embryo signal that that you're pregnant. And you have a period period and and kind of the whole cycle begins anew and a new, fresh, 
kind of receptive endometrium then grows um, in case you get pregnant with your next ovulation. Meanwhile, around the pelvis, if you have endometriosis, in response to the same hormonal changes that bring on your period, these little inappropriate areas of endometrial-like cells cause bleeding and inflammation. And it's like an angry reaction around the pelvis. So this is outside of the uterus. Cells that are like endometrium are growing in spaces they're not meant to grow. And that's what is sore. Yeah, so sometimes it is. Sometimes it causes pain, but not always. And is the pain associated with periods or could it be any time? So when people do experience pain with endometriosis, because it is related to those hormonal changes, it does tend to happen either around ovulation, just before a period's about to come, or during the first couple of days of your period. So to sum up what is endometriosis, it is when... The lining of the uterus, cells like that, grow outside the uterus. Not everyone has endometriosis. Does the majority have endometriosis? No, it's about 10 to 12% of Australian women who are eventually diagnosed with endometriosis. There would be some undiagnosed who just are asymptomatic. Yeah, and sometimes they are symptomatic in that it might be somebody has mild endometriosis and it takes them a little bit longer to get pregnant than other people, but they may still get pregnant. And they may never know that they've got endometriosis and that's what was causing the delay in getting pregnant. Yeah, and just like any condition that affects fertility, in some some situations where a woman has really, really bad endometriosis, really severe endometriosis, that may be, in that case, the main problem stopping someone getting pregnant. But often things compound and sometimes it's a little bit of endometriosis, a little bit of a male factor, the genetics of the couple, um, the compatibility of the couple working together that might make um, a couple have difficulty and sometimes treating some mild endometriosis will tip the balance for a particular couple. So it might not be the primary cause of infertility but it's something that can be treated and once that I don't know, building block, that that block has gone, then getting pregnant is easier. Yeah, and I've known many couples where that contributing factor has been the thing that's helped them get pregnant naturally. Okay. So let's go back to the question. So how does it affect fertility? What does it do to your body to stop you from, stop the embryo from invading? So in mild forms of endometriosis where the anatomy of the pelvis itself is generally okay and the fallopian tubes are working but there are spots around the pelvis called peritoneum uh, or peritoneal endometriosis. In in those kind of situations, it's those um, spots letting off inflammatory chemicals that are toxic to egg and sperm and to embryos that can be the problem. In other forms of endometriosis where there's more severe endometriosis causing scarring of the anatomy and distortion of the anatomy, perhaps swelling of the fallopian tubes, even blockage of the fallopian tubes, endometriosis may be a physical barrier to egg and sperm getting together as well as having that negative implication of the inflammation in the pelvis. And the more severe the endometriosis, the worse the inflammation. Okay, and so the inflammation, what does that look like? So inflammation means invasion of the immune system cells. So just having lots of your own body's kind of um, immune system, which is our system for fighting disease, it's got an important role, but in endometriosis it's kind of like an autoimmune condition where the 
immune system is inappropriately active and sending out toxic toxic chemicals, kind of toxic vibes, if you like, to the fluid of the pelvis through which the egg and sperm have to move and through which they have to get together. And I take it this is something that can't be fixed with turmeric? (laughs) (laughs) Well, look... Jokes aside, I, I don't know any studies that have really looked at turmeric, but we do. Well, you know, anti-inflammatory. It, actually, I think probably it, in a holistic approach, having an anti-inflammatory diet might be of some benefit to endometriosis. But the answer is we don't know because the studies haven't been done. Yeah. Okay. So, what would be some symptoms maybe that you've got endometriosis? Because you can't know you've got it just by having I don't know by getting a pap smear or something, that wouldn't inform a doctor that you've got it. So what might be some symptoms? Some women do have painful periods and that can be uh, a sign that they have some endometriosis. But it's challenging to to doctors and, and diagnosticians because not everyone with painful periods has endometriosis. There are lots of different causes of painful periods. Sometimes painful periods are just what we call physiologically painful, which means that when the uterus contracts to stop the bleeding every month, that causes pain for some women more than others. Um, Sometimes women have what's called pelvic neuralgia, where there isn't endometriosis, but the nerves of the pelvis are oversensitive and that can cause more pain. Some people are um, in pain because of something called adenomyosis, which is when uh, the endometrial glands within the uterus itself grow into the muscle, uh, and that can sometimes make periods more painful. So there are lots of gynaecological conditions that cause period pain, not just endometriosis. But some women with endometriosis do have severe period pain. So that, so that is a cause, it can be a cause of endometriosis is that you'll get period pain? It's a symptom. And in terms of other women though, you can have endometriosis and not have any symptoms and that's why it's called a silent epidemic because we now recognise that lots of women do have endometriosis but have always felt their periods are within the normal spectrum of what is expected because it's not completely out of the question that women just have normal periods and, and suffer some discomfort and pain. Yes. So that number you said earlier, about 10 to 12% of the Australian female population has endometriosis. It could be significantly more, but it's just asymptomatic. Yeah. And it's not affecting fertility. It's not affecting period pain. It's just something that happens with age. Yeah. And more and more women are being diagnosed with endometriosis because our patterns of having children are changing. One thing is we know that delaying your first pregnancy is a risk factor for getting endometriosis. Which is why it's called the career women's disease. Yeah. And because endometriosis is stirred up by menstrual cycles, so having ovulations, for women who are regularly ovulating, that can make their endometriosis progressively worse. A lot of women discover that they might have some endometriosis when they start trying for a baby and they stop something like the pill that they might have been taking for a very long time and then they notice over subsequent months that their periods are getting more and more painful. Not necessarily heavier, but well, often periods do get a little bit heavier after you stop the pill just because they're artificially quite light on the pill, but that's not really related to endometriosis. But periods that get more and more painful cycle after cycle, that can be a sign that endometriosis is waking up, stirring up and getting worse. Okay. Okay. 
So why does this happen? How do we, why do we get it? We don't really know is the answer. Doctors don't really know why endometriosis happens. But we've discovered some clues. For example, if you have a first degree relative who has endometriosis like a mother or a sister, your chance of having endometriosis is seven times that of the general population. So there's some genetics involved. That's really high, seven times, yeah. Yeah, so that, that tells us that some people are more susceptible than others because of their genes but it doesn't really tell us why that person got endometriosis per se. And we don't even know exactly how endometriosis happens. Um, We have theories. There are two main theories that doctors have hypothesised. Mm -hmm. The first is of retrograde menstruation, and that means that when we get our period, when we menstruate, um, doctors think that sometimes cells might go backwards through the fallopian tubes into the pelvis and implant somewhere they're not meant to and kind of seed endometriosis. Not everyone agrees that that's how it's caused. There's another theory which is called the theory of coelomic metaplasia, which is the theory that cells from around the pelvis before they have kind of like become set in their ways and differentiated into eventual cell types that they're going to become kind of go the wrong direction down the pathway of what they're meant to do and become like cells of endometriosis and that kind of draws on the theory that in every cell of our body we have the whole set of instructions for every single um, process in the body we've got a copy of all of our DNA in the nucleus of every cell and each cell of the different tissue types of the body um, starts off as a stem cell that could be anything and then it differentiates so it chooses a pathway and usually it's a one-way ticket, it's a one-way pathway to become a certain type of cell as it matures. Like some cells of the body might become stomach cells, some might become hair cells, some might become skin cells. In the theory of coelomic metaplasia, it's that cells from places where we're not meant to have endometrium kind of take a wrong turn and, and beca- become endometrium. Yeah, and they become endometriosis. Okay. So that's the theory of coelomic metaplasia. And different doctors kind of put their faith in one of those theories or the other. And really we're not 100% sure how endometriosis happens. And these are just theories. They're not proven yet. Okay. So just explain to us what, the, what those two words mean. Coelomic metaplasma. Metaplasia. Coelomic cells are just one type of cells in an embryo, so it comes from a particular place within the embryo, Mm -hmm. a tissue that forms many tissue types in the pelvis. Metaplasia, it just means the cells become something, it's a process of of the cells differentiating. So it's turning from one cell type to another cell type. Okay. Thank you for explaining. How, How would I find out if I've got endometriosis? Endometriosis can sometimes but not always be diagnosed on an ultrasound and you're much more likely to get a clear answer by ultrasound if you've got a really severe type of endometriosis because what we see on ultrasound when we're looking for evidence of endometriosis are nodules, swollen fallopian tubes, Mm -hmm. endometriomas, which are chocolate cysts on the ovary, which are filled with, they're called chocolate cysts or endometriomas because they're filled with inflammatory, thick, gluggy, chocolate-like, like chocolate sauce-like liquid. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of shed by the endometriosis lining 
those cysts on the ovaries. So those are things that we can see on ultrasound. And we can also see when the inflammation from endometriosis has caused anatomical distortion or kind of changes in the, in the female pelvic anatomy. Like, for example, sometimes endometriomas are described on ultrasound if they've kind of stuck together at the back of the uterus and become really swollen as kissing ovaries because the ovaries are kind of stuck together and pushed right next to each other. So those signs, which are very clear on ultrasound, can tell us about really severe endometriosis. So when you say an ultrasound, that's like when if you're going to have a baby and they rub the gel on your tummy and they rub the, I don't know, what is it, X-ray thing on your tummy and then on the screen you can see the the baby, the fetus. So it's the same kind of scan to see endometriosis, exactly the same thing? Yeah, so ultrasound doesn't involve any X-ray or radiation. Ultrasound is a way of imaging that's very good at looking at the female pelvis that uses sound waves bouncing back against an ultrasound transducer and it creates a picture. So you can look through the tummy, but for endometriosis, um, most um, doctors would advise you to have a transvaginal ultrasound because when we put the ultrasound probe in the vagina, we get really close to the pelvic organs of interest and we get to see a much clearer picture. And this is a way that we can see more severe forms of endometriosis, but not mild endometriosis. Yeah, because mild endometriosis is very subtle and you can't necessarily see it on ultrasound. It doesn't necessarily distort the anatomy at all. It's like little kind of areas of the inner skin lining the pelvis called the peritoneum and you just can't see it on ultrasound. It's, it's not obvious on ultrasound. So really gold standard for the diagnosis of endometriosis is a laparoscopy. Um, it's a pelvic operation, which is a keyhole surgery, where we in fact look inside the pelvis with a tiny little camera. Okay. What are the chances of having endometriosis and how would you know it's ha- causing troubles when it comes to conceiving? The chance of, of a patient who's not symptomatic and who doesn't have ultrasound evidence of endometriosis, having silent endometriosis requires a holistic assessment of the patient and her partner as a couple. Because in medicine, there's a principle called Occam's razor, which means that usually when there's a problem, there's one explanation or related explanations that, that are behind that problem. And so things that make endometriosis more likely are ruling out other things that could obviously be causing a couple to have problems getting pregnant. So, for example, if I have had a look at the male and the female and I've found that there's no hormonal causes that are likely to be um, behind them having trouble, that they're not messing up the timing, that there's not sexual dysfunction, that there's no male factor. So if I put that picture together, suddenly in the context of a normal ultrasound, for the woman, um, especially if they've been trying for more than 12 months without success, there's an 80% chance that I'll find endometriosis at a laparoscopy. So it won't be until we do the laparoscopy that we'll know if it's there. Okay, what is a laparoscopy? A laparoscopy, um, it is a mouthful. It's a keyhole surgery. So we've looked into lots of ways of looking for endometriosis without doing a keyhole surgery. And so far, 
Lots of biomarkers have been studied, so different chemicals in the blood, and none can reliably diagnose endometriosis. Um, We've looked for markers in the blood. We've looked for markers in the urine. The most commonly used marker is called CA125, which is a a tumour marker, Um, but it's not always elevated when there is endometriosis and it's not always endometriosis when it is elevated. So it's not a reliable tool and and we so far haven't found any reliable non-invasive ways of looking. So a laparoscopy is quite invasive. It's a surgery, so you have a day hospital admission and come into hospital. And when I do laparoscopies, I have a few people helping me out during the surgery. So I, it's a two-doctor job. So I do the, the surgery myself, but I have an assistant. And that's because I need someone to hold the, the telescope while I operate. And this is under general, it's a proper surgery. Yes, yeah. so another person who I have involved is an anaesthetic doctor, an anaesthetist, um, involved in, in putting my patient to sleep and keeping them safe during the procedure. And how, lo- how long are you under if you're having a laparoscopy for the purpose of endometriosis diagnosis or removal? So it can be very variable. So if you have a laparoscopy and there's no endometriosis, the whole procedure probably takes between half an hour and 45 minutes. When you have a laparoscopy and there is endometriosis, it very much depends on how much endometriosis there's there, what kind of treatment we want to do, and what organs are affected by the endometriosis. Right, okay, so then we're under, you've found some. Yeah, so it can take, for example, for mild endometriosis, maybe kind of an hour. For moderate endometriosis, one to two hours. For really severe endometriosis, um, and generally you know about this beforehand and you've planned for it because the ultrasound generally gives you clues about that, it's visible, it can take, you know, over two and a half, three hours to do a single laparoscopy, sometimes even longer. And what is the procedure? So you're under general anaesthetic, you've gone in, you've seen it, or you already knew it was there because it's been diagnosed previously by ultrasound. What's the process of, of removing it? Is that what you're doing? You're removing the endometriosis? Yeah, so when we have a patient who is a suspect for endometriosis, so we're worried that they might have it, but we're not sure. So we do what's called a diagnostic laparoscopy, which means having a look inside the pelvis to either confirm or deny that there's endometriosis there. If the diagnostic laparoscopy doesn't find endometriosis, then basically what we do is we still try and optimise pelvic factors to improve that patient's fertility. So I'll have a look inside the uterus with a telescope at the same time. That's called a hysteroscopy. I'll give the fallopian tubes a very good flush and I'll have a look around the pelvis for other pathology like little cysts on the fallopian tubes and things like that that by removing I can improve a patient's fertility. So I think that's probably worth mentioning that when someone is under, for the purpose of endometriosis, there are a few other things you can do that can improve fertility whilst you're in there cleaning, cleaning out. Yeah, so basically a diagnostic laparoscopy is a surgical manoeuvre for the purpose of optimising natural fertility in every way possible. If I find endometriosis, it then becomes an operative laparoscopy. So... Suddenly, we've done the diagnostic bit, and there's yeah. endometriosis. It's there. Come out and then go back into surgery a few weeks later. You're going to do it while you're under. That's right. And so you're going to remove it. Yeah. So we do our best to remove every aspect of endometriosis. How do you there's different ways that it can be done, but usually what I do is I use little kind of instruments that are very fine, very delicate, 
um, very precise and I either excise the endometriosis, so I cut it out gently, or I ablate it, which means I gently burn the area of endometriosis and remove it that way. You can use laser. There are other ways to do it. Um, but basically, in broad categories, there's excision and ablation. I would excise any area of endometriosis that was large enough to be taken out by cutting. Sometimes there are tiny little dots of endometriosis, and for off. those, you just burn it off. So when you're saying large amounts, what does, what does large, is that like a centimetre? What does large look like? Oh, just um, even smaller, sometimes I'll excise. It also depends on the position of the endometriosis, if it's safe to excise versus ablate. It's just basically a judgment call on the day. So surgery is, is a science, but it's also an art. And you make the decision of how to deal with that lesion based on its anatomical position and you think you're thinking at the time the best okay. best thing for the patient. So there's no there's no better way to deal with it. It's it depends exact on the case case by case basis. Uh, I think ideally excision is better than ablation, but for tiny little lesions, it's a judgment call. Yeah, not worth doing the cut. So you've had this operation. It's been maybe an hour, two hours that you've been under. How long are you in hospital? How long do you have off work? What what's the recovery on this? So I generally tell my patients that they need at least three days off minimum. And again, it depends if it's diagnostic or therapeutic. So a diagnostic laparoscopy, you might have one little cut at the base of the belly button. Very cosmetic. I'm always very careful about that because my patients, you know, they might not, it might not be everyone's priority to get back into a bikini, but if they want to, I want them to be able to without being worried about scarring. So I tend to make a tiny little incision in the base of the belly button, which would be really difficult to see yeah. um, when it heals. And then if um, I need a second instrument to have a look around, the second port I will do is a little tiny horizontal cut just above the pubic hairline. Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of um, the size of that, it's a five millimetre incision, so half a centimetre. Uh, and through those, we put little tubes, which are what we call ports, and that's for introducing the instruments. We have a look around. If I find there's endometriosis either on one side or both sides of the pelvis, I might make other little incisions of five millimetre diameter um, on the left and the right of the pelvis. And so maximum number of incisions would be four. Now that affects your recovery because if you've had only two incisions, it's not as sore as if you have four incisions. So, but we don't make that decision of how many incisions to make until we've looked inside the tummy. And you know what the details of the procedure are. That's right, because the purpose of those incisions is to place instruments to remove endometriosis from one or the other side of the pelvis. So some patients will have three incisions, some patients will have four incisions. And altogether, it's a few days recovery, probably a week off work, yeah? But I would say it's actually longer until return to normal activities. Okay. So I would say, you know, it might be only a couple of days off work, but you wouldn't be back at the gym lifting weights um, until maybe even three or four weeks down the track. Okay, so there is, it's not a bad recovery, but until you go back to normal, it's, it's a few weeks. And another important thing that I explain to all my patients is when we do a laparoscopy, we have to create a safe space within the pelvis in order to operate. And one thing we do is we put carbon dioxide gas into the tummy to kind of inflate the tummy like a balloon. And we let the carbon dioxide gas out at the end of the procedure. 
And the reason we use carbon dioxide gas is when we use that heat energy, you don't want a flammable gas. No. You need a gas that isn't flammable. So it's, a, it's kind of quite an inert gas, doesn't react to heat or sparks or anything like that. But, and it does tent the abdominal wall away from your pelvic organs, like your bowel, for example, um, and the uterus and the fallopian tubes and the ovaries. And it makes a safe space for us to operate. But you can't ever let out 100% of the gas. I always make an effort to release at the end of the procedure as much gas as possible, but there's always a little bit that's left behind and the body eventually absorbs that gas. Now, it's not uncommon after a laparoscopy when you stand up for that gas to rise under your diaphragm, which is the breathing muscle. And then a lot of patients experience a little bit of kind of hard to really pinpoint but shoulder tip pain. And the reason for that is there's a little patch of skin on either side of the shoulder tip that's actually innervated by the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm. So, um, oh. so the, the diaphragm irritation from the gas causes shoulder tip pain. It's fascinating. I didn't know that was the reason why the shoulders are connected to the diaphragm. Amazing. So you've had the treatment, you've recovered. How is this helping fertility? So there have been lots of studies that have shown that laparoscopy to treat stage one or stage two endometriosis, so even the most mild and minor forms of endometriosis, can improve a woman's chance of falling pregnant naturally with other factors being normal. So if your partner's got normal sperm, there's, you've got unexplained infertility, you have a laparoscopy and we find endometriosis, we give the fallopian tubes a good flush, we clean up the endometriosis and you try naturally, there's a very good chance in the first three months after laparoscopy that if you can get pregnant, you will get pregnant. Okay, so everything's cleaned up and ready to go and it's almost like trying afresh. Yeah, now endometriosis, unfortunately, is a condition that can come back. And so this is where possibly taking the pill helps? Yeah, but obviously if you're trying to get pregnant... You're not taking the pill. Yeah, so, so if you're trying to get pregnant, you are wanting to ovulate. And if you don't get pregnant in a few months after a laparoscopy, um, you know, after, you know, three to four months of trying after a laparoscopy, it may still be time to seek help. And we know that having had laparoscopic treatment of endometriosis not only improves your chance of natural pregnancy, it also improves your chance of getting pregnant through IVF. And this would happen naturally with your doctor because your doctor would have treated you for the endometriosis and it's just it's going back to the doctor to continue a conversation. Yes, except a lot of general gynaecologists very proficiently can treat endometriosis yes, but, but, but might not treat you for... for know, kind of advanced forms of fertility management. So at that point in time, if you've been treated by your general gynaecologist and you've had your endometriosis treated, you've tried for another three or four months and things aren't happening, it might at that point, and most of your gynaecologists will have also made that suggestion to you, to, it might be at that point in time to escalate to a more advanced form of fertility treatment like IVF. Okay. So how will, does IVF help if you've had or have endometriosis? IVF is when we ask the ovaries to make multiple eggs and we collect them outside of your body. So if you have endometriosis where you have an inflammatory pelvis, we've taken the eggs out of that inflammatory environment and we've put them right next to the sperm. 
And hopefully we've made an embryo in... In a safe space without inflammation where the only thing that can happen is fertilisation. Yeah, and the lab environment is safe and it's sterile and we don't have those inflammatory influences on your eggs, sperm and embryos. So we not only improve the chance with IVF numerically by asking for more than one egg a month to get involved, but we take those eggs and sperm which might have been compromised by an inflammatory pelvic environment and we put them in a clean and safe lab environment. Okay, so that's that's how it helps. And, and then with embryo transfer, once we've made our embryo, once we've made our blastocyst, we bypass the inflammatory pelvis and we put the embryo back inside the uterus itself, which is a relatively safe environment for the embryo. So it doesn't have to pass from the pelvis down the fallopian tube to reach the uterus. We just put it back. Taken all, it's a shortcut. Yeah. Now, in some patients with severe endometriosis, I might make specific choices in when I transfer that embryo. I might not transfer it in a fresh cycle where I've made it in an inflammatory environment. I've taken the, the embryos and eggs out of a stimulated cycle where, if anything, endometriosis is actually flared up. I might freeze the embryos and I might then treat my patient to really turn off the endometriosis for a while before putting that embryo back. And in that way, IVF not only helps them make that embryo that's destined to be a baby, but you can then nurture the environment of their pelvis to put the embryo back in a way that so really it's advances its chance of success. Exactly. That's when there's less inflammation. So there's, there's some other evidence as to other ways to manage endometriosis to improve IVF outcomes in women with endometriosis. Uh, there was a Cochrane review, which is a, a basically a study of studies, so looking at all of the medical literature available and analysing it, so studies from all around the world. And we found through that analysis that when you turn off the body's hormones for a while called an ultra-long down regulation, that actually is a, a medical management of endometriosis. It kind of sw switches off the hormonal drive to the endometriosis. And we know in some women with endometriosis, IVF outcomes are improved by turning off their cycle with more powerful drugs um, for three or four months before starting IVF. Okay, and so that might be, say you've had a baby and you don't want another one straight away and age isn't a contributing factor to making you hurry up and have all your children in a row, this would be a way that you could turn off I don't know, your body from making endometriosis in between? So not really. What I'm talking about with the ultra-long down regulation is really about getting the best IVF outcome for someone who has severe endometriosis when they're trying to have a baby. But you're right, I would advise my patients when they're trying to space their children that they should not be ovulating if they have known endometriosis because having ovulatory cycles can stir up endometriosis and we know it's a progressive disease. So someone with endometriosis can have actually a situation worsen with time if less cycle is just allowed to, to go on unchecked. Um, when you're breastfeeding a young baby, especially when you're exclusively breastfeeding, women generally don't ovulate for a while. But when babies start solids and they're not exclusively feeding, women often do get their periods back. And it's a challenge when women are breastfeeding because they can't take the pill. 
Uh, but there are other things we can do to turn off endometriosis and more progesterone dominant um, contraceptive options um, can be used to turn off endometriosis. And then in between having children, my recommendation if you're not someone who's been told by your doctor that you can't take the pill for another reason is to stay on the oral contraceptive pill and to take it continuously so that you don't have periods and so that you don't have your endometriosis waking up. And in some women, endometriosis can actually burn out under those circumstances, at least temporarily. Okay, so you, can, you once it's gone, it doesn't have to come back if you keep it treated. Can I just ask, you mentioned earlier on about stage one or two endometriosis. So I believe there's four stages. Is that what it is? Can you just explain the difference between the different stages? So these stages are basically they're defined medically and anatomically in terms of severity. So stage one endometriosis would be when you've got some endometriosis around the peritoneum lining the skin of the internal pelvis, but that is quite mild and not in too many places. Stage two is you might have more extensive peritoneal endometriosis or some small nodules on the uterosacral ligaments, which are ligaments linking the uterus to, to the sacrum, which is the tailbone. Uh, stage three endometriosis is more extensive endometriosis involving nodules or endometriomas, but where your pelvic anatomy is not completely distorted. Um, and stage four endometriosis is endometriosis involving endometriomas or nodules. Nodules, by the way, can be on the bowel or they can be on the bladder. But in stage four endometriosis, the anatomy of the pelvis is badly distorted by the endometriosis. Like you said at the very beginning, where almost the organs can be fused together. They can. And so the ovaries can be kissing and um, filled with the chocolate fluid. Um, you can have absolute what we call obliteration of the pouch of Douglas. The pouch of Douglas is the potential space behind the uterus and between the uterus and the bowel. And that can be completely obliterated by the uterus becoming stuck down. One in five women have a retroverted uterus, which is a uterus that flops backwards instead of flopping forwards. But in women with endometriosis, a fixed retroverted uterus that is immobile is a sign of endometriosis because it's actually the the nodules and scarring that have caused the uterus to, to move backwards when it wasn't meant to be in that position. So all of these things are um, components of stage four endometriosis. Unfortunately, stage four endometriosis can involve the ureters, which are the tubes that connect um, the kidney down to the bladder, and they can be pulled what we call medially or to the centre, so that they can come into the firing line in a laparoscopy and sometimes with stage four endometriosis, uh, as a surgeon we need to do what's called a ureterolysis, which means to uncover the tunnel of the ureter as it goes down on its journey to the bladder to make sure that we don't accidentally injure it as we're excising endometriosis. Um, so it can cause real serious anatomical distortion and that in itself can have symptoms. Like some women, when they have their period, get really bad bowel pain with endometriosis. Some women get blood in their stool um, when, they, when they open their bowels during their period um, with endometriosis. There's lots of different ways that the anatomical distortion can actually amplify a patient's pain and experience with endometriosis, not just stop them from getting pregnant. So stage four is obviously quite severe, but that's, is that rare? It's not as rare as all that. It, it's one of those conditions where 
it's really difficult to treat uh, stage four endometriosis. Often the operative procedures are very extensive. Uh, sometimes they involve what we call a multidisciplinary team of co-surgeons. So for example, um, if I was to do a procedure like that, I would ideally plan it with a very experienced assistant because you don't want to make life difficult for yourself doing a really complicated operation with a more junior assistant. So usually you'd have two co-surgeons. You'd also have potentially a bowel co-surgeon if, if you were planning to do a bowel resection and sometimes actually excising an area of bowel is necessary in endometriosis surgery. There's a couple of reasons why we might consider that. One is if uh, the bowel is badly diseased and the patient has really bad symptoms. And the other is if the bowel is actually in the way between the ovaries and access transvaginally for an egg collection in IVF. Because if the bowel is in the way, then you'd worry when you do an IVF egg collection that you might actually injure a patient's bowel, which is a disaster. So it might be necessary for them to have their surgery before they have IVF treatment in order to access their ovaries for IVF. Okay. So it does sound quite scary, stage four. And does that happen at, a, at an age? Is it not really in younger people? Is there, would you know? My advice to try and avoid stage four endometriosis is if you're worried that you might have endometriosis or if you have endometriosis in your family, that you should discuss it with your GP, maybe do some preliminary investigations like an ultrasound. And if you do have a laparoscopy and there is endometriosis there, don't let it progress, um, you know, deal with it and stay on the pill because... Basically, there's a lot of kind of myths around there about staying on the pill, that it's bad for you. I mean, there's some people out there who shouldn't take the pill, like, for example, if you've had a history of a stroke or very high blood pressure or if you smoke and you're over 35 or if you have migraines with aura um, or if you've got a really strong family history of breast cancer, then you'd think very closely about taking the pill and there are other ways that we can control your cycle still without the pill. But if you're someone who can take the pill, uh, then... Being on it for a long time actually isn't a very big deal. And if you've got endometriosis, you've got to decide what's the, the least harmful thing for you, letting your endometriosis go unchecked and getting worse or staying on the pill. And my advice is that being on the pill for a long time against contrary to you know urban myth doesn't actually reduce your chance of getting pregnant. And paradoxically, it can actually increase your chance of getting pregnant one day if you've got endo. And... What can happen, though, on the pill is that a lot of women take the pill for different reasons. Sometimes they take the pill to regulate their cycle when it was quite irregular to start with and then they forget because they're on the pill for 10, 15 years and, and their cycle's been clockwork on the pill and then they suddenly stop it and the irregular cycle is unmasked. It's not because of the pill. It's just the pill's been covering it up all that time. And you've forgotten that that's how you were in the first place. Yeah. So, and again, likewise, people can worry about fertility decline with age. Well, that happens, but it's not because of the pill. So I wouldn't say stay on the pill for 20 years and don't worry about it. I mean, I would always advise all my patients that the best time to have a baby is as young as you're practically ready because, you know, egg quality we know does decline with advancing age and your, your ease of conceiving does decline with advancing age for most people uh, or people eventually. But it's not because of the pill. Okay. So if you do think you might have it, and that would be because you've got severe period pain, um, it, it's, it can be 
if it's severe, it will be easily diagnosed by a sonogram. But if if it's not so severe, it would take a laparoscopy. But then you'd really only find that out if you were trying to have a baby and there's nothing to really worry about if it's, say, stage one. Yeah, and if I see an adolescent or a young woman and I think there's a high chance based on her history and what she's told me of her symptoms that she's uh, at risk of having endometriosis, but she's not trying to have a baby right now and her pelvic ultrasound is relatively normal, then it's very reasonable to treat her medically with something like the pill. You don't have to dive into a laparoscopy to make that diagnosis at the time. You can do what's called empirical treatment, which is when you have a hypothesis and you say, okay, I think this person has endometriosis, so what's the best treatment for endometriosis? And without having that gold standard laparoscopic diagnosis, I can put her on the pill. Okay, and then also you'd just say to her when it comes to trying to have children in 10 years or whatever, just to mention that we thought you had endometriosis at the age of 20. And that might be the time to do the laparoscopy. Uh, So it it will probably do her a lot more good in that context. Um, And potentially she will decide whether she wants to, when it does come time to try for a baby, just try naturally coming off the pill. Mm -hmm. That's a reasonable thing to do. Or if she wants to have a laparoscopy from the beginning and have a clean out as a primary move um, when she's trying to get pregnant, given she had that strong suspicion of endometriosis originally. That's a good way to start the process, to clean out and making sure everything's working. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Raylia, for this episode. And if you've got any other topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or find us on the socials and we'll cover your topic. For more information about Dr Rayleigh Lou and fertility services, visit the Women's Health Melbourne website or find us on the socials under Women's Health Melbourne. Thank you for joining us. See you next week.